Chapter Two, Part Five of Celebrated Crimes, Volume Six. Part Two by Alexandre Dumas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Blaine Jushaw, Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 6, Part 2, by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 2, Part 5. The condemned man appealed from his sentence to the Parliament of Toulouse. This court decided that the case required more careful consideration than had yet been given to it, and began by ordering Arnaud d'Autrive to be confronted with Pierre Guillard and Bertrand de Rose. Who can say what feelings animate a man who, already once condemned, finds himself subjected to a second trial? The torture, scarcely ended, begins again, and hope, though reduced to a shadow, regains her sway over his imagination, which clings to her skirts, as it were, with de desperation. The exhausting efforts must be recommenced. It is the last struggle, a struggle which is more desperate in proportion as there is less strength to maintain it. In this case, the defendant was not one of those who are easily cast down. He collected all his energy, all his courage, hoping to come victoriously out of the new combat which lay before him. The magistrates assembled in the great hall of the Parliament, and the prisoner appeared before them. He had first to deal with Pierre, and confronted him calmly, letting him speak, without showing any emotion. Then he replied with indignant reproaches, dwelling on Pierre's greed and avarice, his vows of vengeance, the means employed to work upon Bertrand, his secret maneuvers in order to gain his ends, and the unheard-of animosity displayed in hunting up accusers, witnesses, and calumniators. He defied Pierre to prove that he was not Martin Guerre, his nephew, inasmuch as Pierre had publicly acknowledged and embraced him, and his tardy suspicions only dated from the time of their violent quarrel. His language was so strong and vehement that Pierre became confused and was unable to answer, and the encounter turned entirely in Arnold's favor, who seemed to overawe his adversary from a height of injured innocence, while the latter appeared as a disconcerted slanderer. The scene of his confrontation with Bertrand took a wholly different character. The poor woman, pale, cast down, worn by sorrow, came staggering before the tribunal, in an almost fainting condition. But as soon as she saw the prisoner, she hung her head and covered her face with her hands. He approached her and besought her in the gentlest accents not to persist in an accusation which might send him to the scaffold not thus to avenge any sins he might have committed against her, although he could not reproach himself with any really serious fault. Bertrand started, and murmured in a whisper, "'And Rose?' "'Ah!' Arnold exclaimed, astonished at this revelation. His part was instantly taken, turning to the judges. "'Gentlemen,' he said, "'my wife is a jealous woman. Ten years ago, when I left her, she had formed these suspicions. They were the cause of my voluntary exile. 
Today she again accuses me of guilty relations with the same person. I neither deny nor acknowledge them, but I affirm that it is the blind passion of jealousy, aided by my uncle's suggestions, guided my wife's hand when she signed this denunciation. Bertrand remained silent. Do you dare, he continued, turning toward her, do you dare to swear before God that jealousy did not inspire you with the wish to ruin me? And you, she replied, dare you swear that I was deceived in my suspicions? You see, gentlemen, exclaimed the prisoner triumphantly, her jealousy breaks forth before your eyes. Whether I am or am not guilty of the sin she attributes to me is not the question for you to decide. Can you conscientiously admit the testimony of a woman who, after publicly acknowledging me, after receiving me in her house, after living two years in perfect amnesty with me, has, in a fit of angry vengeance, thought she could give the lie to all her wards and actions? Ah, Bertrand, he continued, if it only concerned my life, I think I could forgive a madness of which your love is both the cause and the excuse. But you are a mother. Think of that. My punishment will recoil on the head of my daughter, who is unhappy enough to have been born since our reunion, and also our unborn child, which you condemn beforehand to curse the union which gave it being. Think of this, Bertrand. You will have to answer before God for what you are now doing. The unhappy woman fell on her knees, weeping. I adjure you, he continued solemnly, you, my wife, Bertrand de Rolls, to swear now, here, on the crucifix, that I am an impostor and a cheat. A crucifix was placed before Bertrand. She made a sign as if to push it away, endeavored to speak, and feebly exclaimed, No, then fell to the ground and was carried out insensible. This scene considerably shook the opinion of the magistrates. They could not believe that an impostor, whatever he might be, would have sufficient daring and presence of mind thus to turn into mockery all that was most sacred. They set a new inquiry on foot, which, instead of producing enlightenment, only plunged them into still greater obscurity. Out of thirty witnesses heard, more than three-quarters agreed in identifying as Martin Gier the man who claimed his name. Never was greater perplexity caused by more extraordinary appearances. The remarkable resemblance upset all reasoning. Some recognized him as Arnold de Trille, and others asserted the exact contrary. He could hardly understand Basque, some said, though born in Biscay. Was that astonishing, seeing he was only three when he left the country? He could neither wrestle nor fence well, but having no occasion to practice these exercises, he might well have forgotten them. The shoemaker, who made his shoes aforetime, thought he took another measure, but he might have made a mistake before or be mistaken now. The prisoner further defended himself by recapitulating the circumstances of his first meeting with Bertrand on his return, the thousand and one little details he had mentioned which he only could have known, 
also the letters in his possession, all of which could only be explained by the assumption that he was the veritable Martin Guerre. Was it likely that he would be wounded over the left eye and leg, as the missing man was supposed to be? Was it likely that the old servant, that the four sisters, his uncle Pierre, many persons to whom he had related facts known only to himself, that all the community, in short, would have recognized him? And even the very intrigue suspected by Bertrand, which had aroused her jealous anger, this very intrigue, if it really existed, was it not another proof of the verity of his claim? Since the person concerned, as interested and penetrating as the legitimate wife, had also accepted him as her former lover, surely here was a mass of evidence sufficient to cast light on the case. Imagine an impostor arriving for the first time in a place where all the inhabitants are unknown to him, and attempting to personate a man who had dwelt there, who would have connections of all kinds, who would have played his part in a thousand different scenes, who would have confided his secrets, his opinions, to relations, friends, acquaintances, to all sorts of people, who had also a wife, that is to say, a person under whose eyes nearly his whole life would be passed, a person would study him perpetually, with whom he would be continually conversing on every sort of subject, could such an impostor sustain his impersonation for a single day, without his memory playing him false? From the physical and moral impossibility of playing such a part, was it not reasonable to conclude that the accused, who had maintained it for more than two years, was the true Martin Guerre? There seemed, in fact, to be nothing which could account for such an attempt being successfully made unless recourse was had to an accusation of sorcery. The idea of handing him over to the ecclesiastical authorities was briefly discussed, but proofs were necessary, and the judges hesitated. It is a principle of justice which has become a precept in law that in cases of uncertainty the accused has the benefit of the doubt. But at the period of which we are writing, these truths were far from being acknowledged. Guilt was presumed rather than innocence, and torture, instituted to force confession from those who could not otherwise be convicted, is only explicable by supposing the judges convinced of the actual guilt of the accused. For no one would have thought of subjecting a possibly innocent person to this suffering. However, notwithstanding this prejudice, which had been handed down to us by some organs of the public ministry, always disposed to assume the guilt of a suspected person. Notwithstanding this prejudice, the judges in this case neither ventured to condemn Martin Guerre themselves as an impostor, nor to demand the intervention of the church. In this conflict of contrary testimony, which seemed to reveal the truth only to immediately obscure it again, in this chaos of arguments and conjectures, which showed flashes of light only to extinguish them in greater darkness, consideration for the family prevailed. The sincerity of Bertrand, the future of the children, seemed reasons for proceeding with extreme caution, and this once admitted could only yield to conclusive evidence. Consequently, the Parliament adjourned the case, 
matters remaining in statu quo, pending a more exhaustive inquiry. Meanwhile, the accused, for whom several relations and friends gave surety, was allowed to be at liberty in Artigues, though remaining under careful surveillance. Bertrand therefore again saw him as an inmate of the house, as if no doubts had ever been cast on the legitimacy of their union. What thoughts passed through her mind during the long tete-a-tete? -tete? She had accused this man of imposture, and now, notwithstanding her secret conviction, she was obliged to appear as if she had no suspicion, as if she had been mistaken, to humiliate herself before the impostor and ask forgiveness for the insanity of her conduct, for, having publicly renounced her accusation by refusing to swear to it, she had no alternative left. In order to sustain her part and to save the honor of her children, she must treat this man as her husband and appear submissive and repentant. She must show him entire confidence as the only means of rehabilitating him and lulling the vengeance of justice. What the widow of Martin Guerre must have suffered in this life of effort was a secret between God and herself, but she looked at her little daughter. She thought of her fast approaching confinement, and took courage. One evening, towards nightfall, she was sitting near him in the most private corner of the garden, with her little child on her knee, whilst the adventurer, sunk in gloomy thoughts, absently stroked Sansi's fair head. Both were silent, for at the bottom of their hearts each knew the other's thoughts, and, no longer able to talk familiarly, nor daring to appear estranged, they spent, when alone together, long hours of silent dreariness. All at once a loud uproar broke the silence of their retreat. They heard the exclamations of many persons, cries of surprise, mixed with angry tones, hasty footsteps. Then the garden gate was flung violently open, and old Marguerite appeared, pale, gasping, almost breathless. Bertrand hastened toward her in astonishment, followed by her husband. But when near enough to speak, she could only answer with inarticulate sounds, pointing with terror to the courtyard of the house. They looked in this direction and saw a man standing at the threshold. They approached him. He stepped forward, as if to place himself between them. He was tall, dark. His clothes were torn. He had a wooden leg. His countenance was stern. He surveyed Bertrand with a gloomy look. She cried aloud and fell back insensible. She recognized her real husband. Arnaud de Thrill stood petrified, while Marguerite distracted herself, endeavoring to revive her mistress. The neighbors, attracted by the noise, invaded the house and stopped gazing with stupefaction at this astonishing resemblance. The two men had the same features, the same height, the same bearing, and suggested one being in two persons. They gazed at each other in terror, and in that superstitious age the idea of sorcery and of infernal intervention naturally occurred to those present. All crossed themselves expecting every moment to see fire from heaven strike one or the other of the two men, or that the earth would engulf one of them. Nothing happened, however, 
except that both were promptly arrested, in order that the strange mystery might be cleared up. The wearer of the wooden leg, interrogated by the judges, related that he came from Spain, where first the healing of his wound, then the want of money, had detained him hitherto. He had travelled on foot, almost a beggar. He gave exactly the same reasons for leaving Artigues as had been given by the other Martin Gear, namely a domestic quarrel caused by jealous suspicion, the desire of seeing other countries, and an adventurous disposition. He had gone back to his birthplace in Biscay. Thence he entered the service of the Cardinal of Burgos. Then the Cardinal's brother had taken him to the war, and he had served with the Spanish troops at the Battle of San Quentiny. His leg had been shattered by an arquebus ball. So far his recital was the counterpart of the one already heard by the judges from the other man. Now they began to differ. Martin Guerre stated that he had been conveyed to a house by a man whose features he did not distinguish, that he thought he was dying, and that several hours elapsed of which he could give no account, being probably delirious, that he suffered later intolerable pain, and on coming to himself found that his leg had been amputated. He remained long between life and death but he was cared for by peasants who probably saved his life. His recovery was very slow. He discovered that in the interval between being struck down in the battle and recovering his senses, his papers had disappeared, but it was impossible to suspect the people who had nursed him with such generous kindness of theft. After his recovery, being absolutely destitute, he sought to return to France and again see his wife and child. He had endured all sorts of privations and fatigues, and at length exhausted, but rejoicing at being near the end of his troubles, he arrived, suspecting nothing, at his own door. Then the terror of the old servant, a few broken words, made him guess at some misfortune, and the appearance of his wife and a man so exactly like himself stupefied him. Matters had now been explained, and he only regretted that his wound had not at once ended his existence. The whole story bore the impress of truth, but when the other prisoner was asked what he had to say, he adhered to his first answers, maintaining their correctness, and again asserted that he was the real Martin Guerre, and that the new claimant could only be Arnold de Thrill, the clever impostor, who was said to resemble himself so much that the inhabitants of Sagias had agreed in mistaking him for the said Arnold. The two Martinguiers were then confronted without changing the situation in the least, the first showing the same assurance, the same bold and confident bearing, while the second, calling on God and men to bear witness to his sincerity, deplored his misfortune in the most pathetic terms. The judge's perplexity was great. The affair became more and more complicated. The question remained as difficult, as uncertain as ever. All the appearances and evidences were at variance. Probability seemed to incline towards one, sympathy was more in favor of the other, but actual proof was still wanting. At length a member of the Parliament, M. de Corras, proposed as a last chance before resorting to torture, 
that final means of examination in a barbarous age, that Bertrand should be placed between the two rivals, trusting, he said, that in such a case a woman's instinct would divine the truth. Consequently, the two Martin Guerres were brought before the Parliament, and a few moments after Bertrand was let in, weak, pale, hardly able to stand, being worn out by suffering and advanced pregnancy. Her appearance excited compassion, and all watched anxiously to see what she would do. She looked at the two men, who had been placed at different ends of the hall, and turning from him who was nearest her, went and knelt silently before the man with the wooden leg. Then, joining her hands as if praying for mercy, she wept bitterly. So simple and touching an action roused the sympathy of all present. Arnold de Thrill grew pale, and everyone expected that Martin Guerre, rejoiced at being vindicated by this public acknowledgment, would raise his wife and embrace her. But he remained cold and stern, and in a contemptuous tone, "'Your tears, madam,' he said, "'they do not move me in the least.' Neither can you seek to excuse your credulity by the examples of my sister and my uncle. A wife knows her husband more intimately than his other relations, as you prove by your present action. And if she is deceived, it is because she consents to the deception. You are the sole cause of the misfortunes of my house, and to you only shall I ever impute them. Thunderstruck by this reproach, the poor woman had no strength to reply, and was taken home more dead than alive. The dignified language of this injured husband made another point in his favor. Much pity was felt for Bertrand, as being the victim of an audacious deception, but everybody agreed that thus it beseemed the real Martin Guerre to have spoken. After the ordeal gone through by the wife had been also essayed by the sisters and other relatives, who one and all followed Bertrand's example and accepted the newcomer, the court, having fully deliberated, passed the following sentence, which we transcribe literally. Having reviewed the trial of Arnaud de Thrill, or Pancet, calling himself Martin Guerre, a prisoner in the Concercier, who appeals from the decision of the judge of Riox, etc. We declare that this court negatives the appeal and defense of the said Arnold Dutille, and as punishment and amends for the imposture, deception, assumption of name and of person, adultery, rape, sacrilege, theft, larceny, and other deeds committed by the aforesaid Dutille and caused the above-mentioned trial, this court has condemned and condemns him to do penance before the church of Artigay, kneeling, clad in his shirt only, bareheaded and barefoot, a halter on his neck, and a burning torch in his hand, and there he shall ask pardon from God, from the king, and from justice, and from the said Martin Guerre, and Bertrand de Rolls, husband and wife. And this done, the aforesaid de Thrill shall be delivered into the hands of the executioners of the king's justice, who shall lead him through the customary streets and crossroads 
of the aforesaid place of Artigase, and the halter on his neck shall bring him before the house of the aforesaid Martin Guerre, where he shall be hung and strangled upon a gibbet, erected for this purpose, after which his body shall be burnt, and for various reasons and considerations thereunto moving the court, it has awarded and awards the goods of the aforesaid Arnaud de Trille, apart from the expense of justice, to the daughter, born unto him by the aforesaid Bertrand de Rose, under the pretense of marriage falsely asserted by him, having hitherto assumed the name and person of the aforesaid Martin Guillier, and by this man's deceiving the aforesaid de Rose, and moreover the court has exempted and exempts from this trial the aforesaid Martin Guillier and Bertrand de Rose. Also the said Pierre Guillier, uncle of the aforesaid Martin, and has remitted and remits the aforesaid Arnaud de Trille to the aforesaid judge of Riox, in order that the present sentence may be executed according to its form and tenor. Pronounced judicially this twelfth day of September, 1560. This sentence substituted the gallows for the decapitation decreed by the first judge, inasmuch as the latter punishment was reserved for criminals of noble birth, while hanging was inflicted on meaner persons. When once his fate was decided, Arnold de Thrill lost all his audacity. Sent back to Artigues, he was interrogated in prison by the judge of Riox and confessed his imposture at great length. He said the idea first occurred to him when, having returned from the camp in Picardy, he was addressed as Martin Guerre by several intimate friends of the latter. He then inquired as to the sort of life, the habits, and relations of this man, and, having contrived to be near him, had watched him closely during the battle. He saw him fall, carried him away, and then, as the reader has already seen, excited his delirium to the utmost in order to obtain possession of his secrets. Having thus explained his successful imposture by natural causes, which excluded any idea of magic or sorcery, he protested his penitence, implored the mercy of God, and prepared himself for execution as became a Christian. The next day, while the populace, collecting from the whole neighborhood, had assembled before the parish church of Artigues in order to behold the penance of the criminal, who, barefoot, attired in a shirt, and holding a lighted torch in his hand, knelt at the entrance of the church. Another scene, no less painful, took place in the house of Martin Guerre. Exhausted by her suffering, which had caused a premature confinement, Bertrand lay on her couch of pain, and besought pardon from him who she had innocently wronged, entreating him also to pray for her soul. Martin Guerre, sitting at her bedside, extended his hand, and blessed her. She took his hand and held it to her lips. She could no longer speak. All at once a loud noise was heard outside. The guilty man had just been executed in front of the house. When finally attached to the gallows, he uttered a terrible cry, which was answered by another from inside the house, 
The same evening, while the body of the malefactor was being consumed by fire, the remains of a mother and child were laid to rest in consecrated ground. End of chapter 2, part 5 End of Martin Guerre End of volume 6, part 2 of Celebrated Crimes